We have four gospel writers, and having four gospels at our disposal is a tremendous resource to us. Uh, it is, is what allows us to be able to compare and to contrast uh, the witness. Uh, we have these as an encouragement for our faith. They are also uh, intended to confirm the authenticity of Jesus, His life and His ministry and His resurrection. And there are also subtle variations in the way the writers present the details of Jesus' life and ministry. These details are subtle, uh, yet uh, they reflect a specific focus that the writers had in their presentation, uh, a point that they wanted to convey. And John's account, the Apostle John had a very unique style. He was the last one writing after all uh, all the other three had written their accounts, and uh, he, he very specifically honed in on specific stories that emphasized points he wanted to convey. And one of the points that he conveys in his writing is the essential nature of faith, that it, it has the capacity to see what other people cannot see. Faith has an ability to see beyond the physical, to see the spiritual. And in John's writing, for example, he describes a man who was healed by a pool of water, uh, the pool of Bethesda. And in that remarkable, marvelous healing, uh, there was a period of time in which Jesus left the situation, and then He came back and He found the man who had been healed. And he communicated to him the importance of obedience to the law, of following and not committing sins, so that nothing worse might happen to him in the future. Apparently, this accident that had created lameness in his body had been caused by something that he had involved himself that was sinful. We don't have the detail on that. But this is what is significant. That man who heard those words from Jesus was offended. He had been healed, but he was offended. And what he did in his offense and his pride, he hardened his heart and he went and he told the Pharisees that it was Jesus who had healed him on the Sabbath day in violation of the law. A remarkable illustration of a hard heart, even in the midst of receiving gracious healing. John also focuses on um, a man who was born without physical sight, and he healed him also on a Sabbath day. And Jesus went and found him afterwards and revealed himself as being the, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who healed him. And you know what that man did? He rose to Jesus' defense in the face of the Pharisees, he didn't have a prideful heart, and he recognized he had eyes to see what others could not see. And I'm bringing this to our attention because the triumphal entry, John emphasizes the importance of seeing with the eyes that which others cannot see. And in the triumphal entry, if we were to read just a few more verses later into the storyline, 
we would have the Pharisees asking and begging Jesus for some sign that He could do, as if He had never done any sign before. And then they had the Greeks coming up. And the Greeks were coming up to Him and saying to Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it's a beautiful contrast of the difference between eyes that can see and those that are hardened because of sin and pride. And so, I'm looking at our text this morning in the book of Revelation, and I'm considering the future triumphal entry, and I want us as believers to be able to see it now. The world cannot see Jesus coming again in the triumph and and the blare of the trumpet in the sky. We can see that with our eyes, the eyes of our heart, and it should profoundly affect the way that we worship God today. And so, I want to encourage us to consider a future triumphal entry in which we will see Jesus uh, with our physical eyes, and how great and joyful uh, that will be. So, Revelation, John is also the writer. He is the one who wrote the gospel. He is the one who penned the words of Revelation. And in this book of Revelation, um, it's an unveiling. It is a revealing. It is taking away the the physical world that we we interact with, and we we are able to, to see what others cannot see. And so as we look into this text, I want us to, we're going to read through verses 1 through 10, and we're going to observe some of the things that are currently happening in the throne room of God. Let's look at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angels said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're going to be moving deeper in and further into reality this morning. We're being invited uh, into a place in which infinite worship is occurring in heaven. And we see, as we read this, perhaps you noticed that there were four hallelujahs. Four times the word hallelujah occurs, which means praise the Lord, praise Jehovah. Repetition is so common in in the writing of Jewish people, uh, you can't but observe repetitions that occur. And in this repetition, uh, as you know, uh, perhaps, in the book of Revelation, numbers mean things, right? Seven is a very important number in the book of Revelation, a, 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 a picture of perfection. But here, we have four, which seems a little odd, perhaps, to us, but in that time period, four was kind of like an exclamation point, three hallelujahs and one more for emphasis. And so, it's to, to, to draw our attention to what the worshipers are singing and saying. Let's take for a moment and just consider who are these worshipers. Let's consider the, 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 the people that are assembled here in the throne room. And let's look at some clues. Uh, first clue that, that I observed was in verse 1, in which John transitions to a new section in his writing. We haven't had the privilege of working paragraph by paragraph through the book of Revelation, but the word after this is a transition word. It's designed to catch our attention, to cause us to reflect even back to previous situations in which there were events that had occurred. In fact, if we were to go back to Revelation chapter 7, we would see an after this in the words of that chapter, which would draw our attention to a similar group of people that were assembled around the throne room. In uh, Revelation chapter 7, in verse 9, uh, we have uh, these words, and after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes of peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, notice this, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, and if you drop down to verse 14, there's some explanation. These had come out of the great tribulation. These had come out of the great tribula tribulation. Now, that's a clue, an important clue. Let's look back at Revelation 19, in which um, we see the great multitude assembled again. We're moving towards the end of the book of Revelation. So, I'm of the opinion that this group is expanding 
and is growing to include not just those who survive the great tribulation through their death and passage into glory, but at this stage in the book of Revelation, there is a description here of the collected saints from all ages and all periods of time. Um, Specifically, I see here in verse 7 that this is perhaps represented as the body uh, of the bride of Christ, and it's an expansive description. Uh, I know that we technically think of the church itself as the bride of Christ, and we should, and that is true, but there is in this also, I believe, an expansive grafting in of, of peoples who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what I see in this text is that John is having his vision expanded. God is pulling back his capacity to see. That which is not visible is being made visible to him in a visionary form. And what John is seeing is he's seeing the assembled Believers, those who worship God in spirit and in truth. You remember when Jesus was on the earth, He said to a woman in Samaria these words, He said, an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking people to worship Him, God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, God is spirit, and so true worship transcends the physical world that's before us. True worship is provided by the Holy Spirit and takes us out of this physical world and puts us in the presence of God. Who are these worshipers that John saw? I believe that a supernatural capacity was given to John so that he could see all who have been saved worshiping before the throne. Are you ready for this? In other words, I believe that John saw your future self worshiping before the throne. That's what the nature of the book of Revelation is. It's a peeling back of the physical reality that we live with. And what this tells me as I consider this, that this vision of, of all these voices singing before the throne, I see that how we worship God matters. Even right now, that we're worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, that may sound and resonate different in your thinking, but I want us to understand that what these folks are saying and singing before the throne is, should be reflected in the kinds of things that we are saying. 
we ought to ask ourselves, what are they singing before the throne? What are they saying? And so we're going to look a little bit closer at some of the words and lyrics of the song that they sang, because they're the kinds of things that we ought to be singing as we worship here now in spirit and in truth. There is contrast in these lyrics with what occurred in the previous chapter, chapter 18. Chapter 18, if you were to take some time to read it, perhaps maybe you could read some of it this afternoon, you can see the final triumph of God over the empire, the anti-Christ empire of the world, known as Babylon. And there is destruction, and there's weeping, and there's wailing going on because the trade that that people had enjoyed has come to an end. And there's a contrast here. When we come to chapter 19, we see rejoicing that finally justice has been had. Finally. And so I want us to consider why God is worthy of praise and how that should inform our thinking about God. And the first aspect of his of the, what the, some of the words that they're saying, I believe here, shows us in verses 1 and 2, that they're praising God because God saves us from His wrath. God saves us from His wrath. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah! Salvation is for us in the midst of judgment of the world. Salvation is for us. And the time of rebellion is over. And God is going to rule and judge in sovereign power. I don't know if you've ever really given this a thought of consideration, but we really should. That the gospel of Jesus Christ not only declares the power of God unto salvation, it also declares the power of God in judgment. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. Consider what Paul said. We often stop short of the full expression of what Paul said. We usually stop with verse 17 in our reflection. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for, it is the righteousness, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And our temptation is to be ashamed of coming judgment. It's important 
that the justice of God be not diminished in our thinking. If God is not just to punish wickedness, then why should we trust Him to save us from it? This is the glory and the power of God that He would provide a provision of escape from the coming wrath that we as humanity deserve profoundly. He took the wrath we deserved. That's what makes the gospel so great. And the Father's true worshipers praise God for judging a counterfeit gospel, a, conf- a counterfeit God. It's described as a prostitute here. A prostitute who has harlated herself to a, a culture and world and a spirit of the age that does not attribute God's capacity to judge the world. And the harlot has been complicit so frequently in the death, the death of the true saints of God. I don't have time to develop all of the church history there and and seeing that the, the false church has often persecuted the true church. But that is the case. But it's so important for us not to neuter the gospel. We have to understand the severity of God's wrath in order to be able to understand and appreciate the true grace of God. The second aspect here, the second thing that they're they're highlighting kind of builds off of the first, and that is that God not only saves us from His wrath, but He also saves us from an eternity in hell. Verse 3, once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and they're looking at the burning of the city, and they're realizing that this is just anticipation of the burning that is going to occur in hell and in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. As I said, there is a reticence to talk about wrath. There's an even greater reticence to talk about hell itself. And I get it. I get it. And we need to be careful that, that what might be perceived to be poor taste by others does not then make us to be ashamed of the gospel. Because in that, God has made provision. Look at verse 5. We see another expression, uh, and this comes out of the throne room, and the expression that there is grace and opportunity for the world. We see um, in verse 4 at the end that the, those who were seated around the throne cried, Hallelujah. And in response to this, uh, from the very throne, there is these words, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Small and great. God has a gracious provision that He makes available to all who would come to Him. You know, I was thinking about and meditating on this passage this week, and I was thinking about the I was thinking about the image of a trap. 
like jaws on a trap. And how like hell is like a trap. The jaws are open. Like a giant rat trap, if you will. And sin has tripped the, the latch that holds the jaws and the spring. And it's rapidly closing in upon the world. But God in His mercy stood in that gap and is holding open the jaws. He's holding open the jaws and providing opportunity for people to call out and be redeemed and saved from what is coming upon the world. I was reflecting in those words, praise our God, you who fear Him, small and great. The gospel is not a discriminator. It is available to all who would call upon His name. In 1 John 2, John, who also penned this, also penned letters, and in 1 John 2, 2, he says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is opportunity, and the cross, if you will, is a wedge that's keeping the jaws of the trap open. But someday, the jaws are going to snap. God has made a provision, and God is not a respecter of persons. Whosoever may come, and I would encourage you to come quickly, the jaws of hell will snap, and they won't be opened again. But this is reason to rejoice. Jesus, on Good Friday, was on that cross and became the wedge that keeps that door open. I also see the content of these praises, and I see in verses 6 through 9 uh, just another uh, breathtaking uh, reason to, to praise the Lord, and that is in verses 6, particularly, the, the mighty voice of the multitude cries out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Yes, He reigns. Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty of God on high, and He reigns. And He is sovereign over the affairs of this earth, and there is a coming day when He will physically rule and reign upon this earth, and we look forward to that. We see this as believers, and others cannot see it. They live for today as if this is all that matters, and there's nothing left afterwards. But the Father's true worshipers can see through the foolishness of our age. We can see through the foolish regulations, the foolish attempt to manage the church. And we see in it the providence of God moving all of history towards a coming day in which He will return. These are all mighty, mighty reasons to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. He is coming again. We've seen the group. We understand that we are also participants in that worship. We see the content of 
what they were saying and proclaiming. What are they anticipating? I've kind of alluded to some of this already. What are they anticipating? In verse 6, uh, uh, in verse 7, it kind of, we move into uh, an expanded anticipation of what they're looking forward to. In verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The book of Zechariah prophesies that the Lord shall be king over all the earth. We're looking forward to that day. And weddings, weddings are a time of rejoicing, are they not? I, I, I know uh, that even in our broken state, in our broken experiences, we still look forward to the newness of a wedding. And we rejoice in that. And there is a marriage of the Lamb, it says, has come. The bride has made herself ready. Time of great exaltation. Charles Spurgeon said this, There is joy in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Repents. I should say repents. But when all these repenting sinners are gathered together into one perfect body and married to the Lamb, what will be the infinite gladness? From the lesser to the greater, the full assembly of all the redeemed, it will be a joyous occasion. And God opened John's eyes to see what most others don't see. He pulls back reality so that He, he can see the future, and the presence. And in this way, the glory and the pleasure of God is realized when the body is together, when the body is assembled, and it parallels the invisible joy that's occurring in the throne room of God. <laughs> we are now anticipating the removal of the physical world. I, 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 as we get older, we groan, don't we? We long for the completion of our body. We intuitively know. I mean, we're physical bodies, but we have a spirit that sometimes doesn't realize that our bodies are decaying, right? We tend to do more than our bodies should at times, and then we pay for it. It's part of the groaning process. But we will be one day liberated into an expression of full completeness and joy. What will that be like? I, I consider the passionate love that's expressed in creation to be a descriptive of that experience that we will have. The love that's expressed in the Song of Songs between the bride and the groom is a wonderful metaphor in which our groom will come for us. Now, I picked some section here that we won't probably blush over. But we read these words. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. 
The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear upon the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Doesn't it thrill your soul when you come out in the morning and you can actually, you're going to your car and you can hear the, the birds and you know, ah, it's finally here. Think about the anticipation of seeing Him whom our hearts delight in. The one that we have been told all of our lives, especially I've grown up in the church and I've, I've heard Jesus loves me, this I know, ever since I was a wee babe. I will, we will finally see Him. And what rejoicing that will be. The bride is granted, the bride is granted appropriate clothing in these verses. Fine linen, bright and pure. How did they become bright and pure? They were made pure by the blood of the Lamb. All of grace. And what is this fine linen as a metaphor? He tells us at the end of verse 8, he says, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds of the saints are those acts of devotion which communicate a loyalty to our groom, to our husband. We had a record playing last night. A record, yes. Abby went to see her mom a while ago and, and she picked up a collection of records and, and we had one spinning on the spindle and this, I had never heard it. Abby grew up with it, hearing it. And it was, don't sit under the apple tree with anyone but me. And as I was listening to those lyrics, I was like, oh, well, those are quite the lyrics. But then I was also, also recognizing you know, there was a generation who went to war who desired loyalty at home. I mean, if you ever had a long-distance relationship, I remember the days when Abby and I were engaged, we were separated for a little time, and she didn't have dates at school. It was lonely, at least she tells me it was lonely. You know, you know what was so precious to me? Is that she reserved her symbols of affection for me alone. And I as well for her. And those acts of loyalty created anticipation and longing, yes. And I see in this an expression of how we communicate our anticipation and longing for our groom. When we give up our comforts to assemble, we put aside our selfish impulses and we gather with others who are also longing, and that's a sign of your affection. It's a sign of your anticipation. 
And what we're doing is we're demonstrating a devotedness to our groom who is coming. We're worshiping in spirit and in truth. As a single person, if we resist the urge to move in with someone, what we're doing is we're communicating our fidelity to our husband who is in heaven. When we share the first fruits of our income with the body, we are demonstrating our fidelity and love to Him first. These don't have to be legalistic things. They can be expressions of our love for Him. And so, we see the infinite worship in heaven. And there's just two more verses here that really bring us to an invitation, an invitation to worship God. And there's an interpretation. The angel in verse 9 says to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, he's interpreting what's going on here. And in verse in these verses, there's three short little, little points of interpretation in the invitation to the marriage supper. And the first is, there's an invitation to respond to grace. There is a, it says, blessed are those who are invited, called. Many are called, Scriptures say. And there is, there is a gracious invitation to the whole world. You know, it's common to mix metaphors in the ancient world, and, and in this you see those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then you also see, okay, so in our minds we might go quickly to, okay, those are two parties, two separate groups. And I know some interpret that way, and that's fine, but I see here kind of a collective that's going on, and there's a kind of a collective awareness, a collective awareness of blessing and promise to those who respond to the gracious invitation. In verse 9, the word blessed there could also be translated flourishing, so that you might see it this way, flourishing are those who are called were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's God's intention to bring out the best for you in this relationship. And if you hear the Spirit calling you internally, don't linger. Come and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord has promised good to me, the songwriter says. He has. And in this marriage supper, there is an implication, there is an implication of the joy of heaven. And I think, I believe that this, and some may differ slightly in how this plays itself out, but I believe that this is a reference to the great thousand-year reign of Christ and joy that will be experienced with our groom. It's something that seems to like never end. It's a, 
invitation to respond to grace. There is nothing that you can do inherently to bring yourself into this this wedding. (laughs) It comes about by invitation. You respond to it. That's all there is. Second, I see in this text, there's a, 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 the angel is instructing John and all who adhere to hold to the truth. Um, in 9, uh, at the last part there, he says, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. And it doesn't get more straightforward than that. The allure of this passing world is so great that we would see the physical to be the actual. Not at all. We experience things, yes, I understand, this is real, but there is beyond the physical that will last forever. And to hold to the truth, we need to pray for eyes to see what others cannot see. And I know there are times when we get discouraged, we get downtrodden, and the experiences of life crowd our souls. And we need ears to hear the voice of our husband calling, graciously come. You know, when Abby and I were dating, we would look forward to letters in the mail. Those letters in the mail, those are the dark ages. Yes, we had phones, but phones had what, we, what they would call long-distance charges, and it was expensive, and my parents were a little bit, you know, stingy, and so paper products and mail was a lot cheaper, but we would hold on to every word that would come through the mail, and this, the words of this book paint pictures of our Redeemer. The words that we would receive from one another would paint pictures of our loved one. And in the words of Scripture, we see images of our beloved. Hold on to the truth. It's intended to carry our hearts forward until we see our beloved. A third piece of truth here, that a third interpretation that the angel gives is found in verse 10, and that is to worship God. And it's very simply presented. John's overwhelmed by what he sees, and it says, and then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God. He's overwhelmed, but he's quickly turned around and said, no, no, this is the right orientation. Of you should be bowing. And the last sentence there is crucial. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's crucial. And all true believers will acknowledge the testimony of the Scripture about Jesus. Witness to Jesus the Savior is not true unless it includes the truth that He is also the coming King. The idea of a merely good Jesus of Nazareth is not a testimony 
of Scripture. It's a liberal invention. It doesn't square with the testimony of Scripture. Jesus reigns. He's coming again. Capitol Hill thinks that they reign. They don't reign. Jesus reigns. And John's gospel is consistent to this witness, and John's gospel boldly declares that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. That's a beautiful description, an introduction to the whole reason he's writing, to let us see Jesus, to see the only God who's at the Father's right hand. And John concludes his gospel with these words, and we've been saying them for several weeks now, haven't we? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. Let's read it together. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Many Christians intellectually believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but this truth does not intensify our worship of Jesus now for some reason. Why is that? Well, there's many reasons, truly, but it could be that we're not, we're not seeing Jesus now. We're not worshiping Him now because we don't see Him as imminent, as vital, as if reality is pulled back. And we struggle with our flesh. We struggle with everything that goes on. I want to close with um, a parable that Jesus told. It's a parable that was very typical in ancient Israel in which a wedding would occur in the evening, very typically in the evening. And the groom who had been separated from his future bride would come, come to her home and to bring her home with the attendants, the the guests, and they would come to his house for celebration and ceremony and feasting. Jesus told the story of the ten women, the ten virgins, who, who half of them were, were not prepared while the other were prepared. They had lamps all, but they did not prepare to have an adequate supply of oil. And some were sleeping, and when the, when the announcement that the bride was there, they were found lacking, and, and they started to beg the other women, hey, can we please have some of your oil? And then the other lady said, well, if we give you what we have, we won't be ready either. Go to the sellers and buy what, what we cannot give you. <laughs> you see, they, they wanted to have what couldn't be given that had to be bought. Character and obedience cannot be borrowed. It comes at a cost. 
It involves trial. It involves suffering. It involves experience with the Holy Spirit. And the qualities of a living faith can't be borrowed. They have to be bought. Qualities like faith, endurance, courage, obedience, they only come if we're awake and we're watching, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Dependent upon Him when we are going through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not fear evil because we know that He is with us. It's because we're awake, we're watching, we have our wicks trimmed, we're engaged in awareness and looking and longing. But these are the fine linens, these are the pure and bright apparel that we don as we prepare and anticipate the coming of our husband. Sometimes we ask this question, when will Christ come? When will He, when will he come? I've asked that question, but really it's the wrong question to be asking. We actually should be realizing, by faith we should be seeing. We should be looking and seeing our groom. That's what it means to be a true worshiper of Jesus Christ, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I've left my big idea to the very end. Faith in Jesus' second coming will intensify your worship now. I believe that the great triumphal entry is coming. It, it was seen in the past. Therefore, we also have confidence that it will happen again. And He is coming. If you turn one page over in your Bibles... The bride says this, or the groom says this, Behold, I am coming soon, verse 12. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirst come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life take it without price. Out of the belly will flow rivers of water. It's available for us even now.